I'm Fran Scott, and this is How to Build a Railway. Railway stations are the vital organs of a railway transportation system. Sitting at the heart of the system, they receive passenger flows from the railway network and provide interchange to other forms of transport. Their design must enable this flow to be efficient and pleasant for passengers. Connections to other modes of transport must be smooth and easily navigated. Stations must also support the communities that host them, creating new opportunities for economic growth in and around their footprint. The design of stations has to meet the demands of today and of tomorrow. Not only must architects and designers create stations that support passenger use from the moment the railway launches, they must also predict the future. There are four new stations being developed for the first phase of High Speed 2. These must fit seamlessly into existing urban infrastructure. And with four very different locations, that means that no two stations will look the same. We've got four great stations for phase one. So, and they're all very, very different. And that's because they're all in different places doing different things. This is Laura Kidd. She is the head of architecture for HS2 and has worked on a wide range of railway stations from North Greenwich on the Jubilee Line through to a decade on the St Pancras station as part of High Speed 1. This means she has spent many years thinking about how railway stations should look, feel and operate from a passenger perspective. In this job, you kind of become an expert without even knowing it. You know, you're just working and learning and working and learning and you build up this uh, expertise without even realising it. The four great stations that Laura describes are... London Euston, where a new terminus will be built alongside the existing mainline station. Old Oak Common, a new superhub station in the northwest of London, which will link HS2 with the new Elizabeth Line and the Great Western Railway. Interchange, a new station south of Birmingham that connects High Speed 2 to Birmingham Airport, Solihull and the NEC. And finally, Birmingham Curzon Street Station, a new station in the heart of the city. Years of evaluation and planning went into the selection of these stations. Operational and engineering feasibility was balanced against passenger demand, cost and environmental considerations. Long lists were drawn up, which then became short lists as the analysis intensified. Once the locations were decided, the exciting part of the work could then really get going. The HS2 design vision is, is everything in terms of how it's led us as the, the client team to ask our designers to deliver design. So right early on, we developed a design vision which, as a client, set out people, place and time. The design vision is a really important part of the requirement that HS2, as a client, asks of the teams that it hired to do the work of designing each of the four stations. In order to select the right teams, HS2 set potential designers a challenge. And so using that people, place and time, we asked them to look at the area outside of the station that they were applying 
for, which was not as complicated as inside the station. And we asked them to look at the areas outside the station and give us how they would respond to that. This included vision boards, short videos, and a written statement on what the vision would be for each site. This brought the architects right slap bang into the middle of the procurement process, as in terms of able to win or lose a job for them. At the same time, the designers had to hold in mind the uniqueness of each location. So the stations are very much about placemaking, and it's like, where are the entrances and exits? We've got an obligation to really look at the, the public realm that surrounds our stations. So it's very much about of how are we making these places nice for people? You know, what, what are we providing? You know, what are we looking at in terms of greening? Through urban landscaping or pocket parks, for example. So that's guiding the vision of the outside of the station and the public realm. But then again, then you get down to the customer and the passenger and you think, but they need to be catered for in terms of what's, the, what's familiar and what's the same about these stations. So I began to think about what were we going to have of common design elements? What were going to be those commonalities between the design? Laura calls these touch points from common signage to toilets and lighting. But I really felt that for us it was more about the passenger journey and helping them. Because it's, you know, it's a daunting task travelling and especially, you know, on a high speed train, which is half a kilometre long, which always still terrifies me. And actually you've still got to get people into that station, still feeling comfortable to get down to where they need to be to get their seat on that train. All of these really important aspects then feed into a set of design requirements that the successful design teams will use for shaping HS2 stations. But one thing about requirements is that they need to be evidence-based. You can't just say, I want all the stations to be red and pink, you know, because what, what's that based on? But if you want a flooring, for instance, to be the most efficient flooring, you've got to actually decide what, based on your experience, would you think is the most efficient flooring? And then what evidence supports that to become a requirement for the designers when they come on board to give you that flooring that you've asked for? There's one thing that Laura Kidd said when I first joined that has really stuck with me throughout was that the design vision principles that we have of people, place and time recognise the fact that the stations aren't just about what they do. Harla Lloyd was the lead architect for the Midlands stations, which include Birmingham's Curzon Street and Interchange Station, which will connect Birmingham's International Airport and the NEC, so the National Exhibition Centre. But it's about where they are. It's about the place that they're in, the context they're in, and how they're going to add to that. The people that are being served or are being impacted, so the local communities, whether they, they, they kind of are users or not, um, and, and reflecting the, the time, the place, and, and, and uh, you know, the kind of the local flavour of the areas. Harla was raised in Birmingham. She has a deep understanding of the needs of the local communities and is proud of its heritage. 
Curzon Street Station, for example, is in an area that is ripe for regeneration. And the master plan includes 141 hectares of development and a 1.6 billion economic uplift. I mean, the site itself, we're on the threshold of Digbeth, which has a very unique architectural and, and, and community character to it. At the time of the Industrial Revolution, Digbeth was a true growth engine, harnessing the power of the Birmingham Canal to trade its world-famous metalwork far and wide. This unfortunately diminished during the 20th century as the industrial practices changed. So a lot of those very vibrant spaces and, and heavily used and heavily industrialised spaces became abandoned and derelict and, and decrepit. Um, and what we've started to see in, in this century is, an, 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 is the fact that uh, there's now a repurposing of a lot of the of, of, of the, the areas of Digbeth towards something that's more creative, more um, in, entrepreneurial. It's uh, more startup set up, um, very much about small businesses that are uh, very much adopting a creative look to how they approach industry and 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 uh, an artistic endeavour. Now HS2 provides Digbeth with the opportunity for new investment, new kinds of housing and building development, for example. Using an environmental rating system called BRIAM, the station and in fact all of the stations are being designed with the most sustainable technologies. At Curzon Street, this means it will be net zero carbon in its operation and includes the use of rainwater capture and power from photovoltaic panels. With all of these criteria to consider, along with the practical railway specifications that will enable a high frequency of trains to come in and out of the station in each direction, what have the architects and designers, in this case Grimshaw Architects with consultant WSP, actually come up with? They worked really hard at trying to create uh, an uncluttered space that would afford clear views, intuitive wayfinding through those spaces, um, a lot of natural daylight being brought in and a feeling of spaciousness and, and, and openness. And to do that, they worked really hard with the structural engineers to arrive at something that is so elegant in its simplicity in terms of the curved, a shallow curved arched roof that spans, as I said, it's about the width of a football pitch. I mean, it's a huge span. A typical football pitch is 68 metres wide. The Curzon Street station roof is two metres longer, coming in at 70 metres. And lengthways, it runs an impressive 280 metres. What's more, the roof is self-supporting, and this means that there are no internal columns to disrupt the flow of passengers through the station. And it spans with no intermediate columns that break that, that span. From edge to edge, 
with an uplift and then it forces the 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 forces that come off that roof and down are taken through columns that follow the form of that the engineers behind the structure describe it as a modern interpretation of the gothic pointed arch canopy used at St Pancras station Every 32 metres, a huge parabolic arch sweeps over the station, with each end connected to 18 reinforced concrete columns that transfer the load of the roof down to the ground. In between the arches sit a network of triangular steel trusses described as a diagrid. It's a crisscross, it's like a herringbone crisscross of main arches that cross from one side to the other at diagonals and then in between that crisscross then has secondary like spines that follow it and that in itself then provides over 1400 triangular shapes that become the bits that fill in the gaps and those become the soffit they become the outdoor external weathering and The architects and the structural engineers worked really hard at making that shape efficient, rationalising the the number of different types that you'd get of these triangular shapes so that out of 1,400 of these that you'd need, you'd actually, I think they honed it down to about seven or nine different repetitive modules, which is incredible. This makes manufacturing of the components much easier and cost-effective as it enables the use of modern techniques such as modularization and maximizing off-site construction. At the same time, the design speaks to the heritage of the country's most iconic Victorian stations. I mean, who doesn't walk into the likes of King's Cross or St Pancras or, you know, Paddington and not get, you know, doesn't find the inspiration of that Victorian architecture? almost cathedral-like, you know. And this draws on that. It draws on the the DNA of Victorian architecture. One of the things that the architects did, they actually had an overlay of the cross-section of our station as designed against the backdrop of St Pancras in a cross-section, showing that the proportions were absolutely identical. And the only difference being was the ridge of the roof is that we have a shallow, gentle, organic curve, whereas St Pancras has the gossip type of ogee type of of ridge. Um, And I thought that was absolutely amazing that here we are using the best of um, that heroic engineering of the Victorian age, drawing on that DNA, but actually then working it through in a, a very contemporary 21st century approach, you know, through diagrids and, and, and off-site manufacturing and, and modularization. And I think it's a fantastic, a fantastic story that people will appreciate. The other Midland station, Interchange, has a completely different set of parameters that have driven its design. Sitting outside of the city centre, it has a large area of around 150 hectares, bound by major roads such as the M42, the A45 and the A452. However, the station building will be much smaller, as there are fewer services stopping here. And primarily it's to interchange with the services at Birmingham International, 
rail station, Birmingham Airport, and for those visiting or coming away from the NEC. The design focus for this station has been on sustainability, with interchange going way beyond the excellent requirements set out in the BREEAM standards. It was the first station in the world to be considered outstanding using this assessment system. It's not just a UK first. That's a global first for any station. The design of the roof maximises natural daylight and ventilation, whilst also incorporating a rainwater catchment system that can hold 150 cubic metres of water that is then reused within the station via a network of underground pipes, lowering the overall demand for water. Energy is generated via 2,000 square metres of solar panels, meaning that the station will be net zero in terms of carbon emissions. Interchange Station is not the only one that has now received the outstanding rating, although common sustainability has also gone beyond the requirements for excellent. From the very onset, we, we set out to be BREAM Excellence, so the building research establishment, the category rating of excellent. We're, we're on course with, this, with the station design and the implementation to exceed that and, and achieve the outstanding rating. Adrian Hooper is the Head of Engineering and Environment on the Old Oak Common Station. And a few weeks after we spoke with him, the station did receive the outstanding rating. And this new super hub will provide passengers a direct interchange in northwest London with conventional rail services, including the Elizabeth Line and Great Western Railway. The key to locating the station here was this, with the depot nature of the land and, and the and the rail assets, it was a, a large piece of public owned land that had the development potential. So it had had the scale available to build a high speed station. The, the deep box here is, is, is over 900 meters long and 70 meters wide and 20 meters deep. So it's an enormous structure to, to find in, in, um, in West London. <laughs> Here, six 450-metre-long platforms will sit in the vast station box, with new twin tunnels taking high-speed trains east and then south into London Euston. Once again, the station will be covered by a large vaulted roof, this time designed by architects Wilkinson Iyer with consultant WSP. Work to prepare for construction began in 2017, when the Enabling Works contractor, a joint venture of contractors Costain and Skanska, began clearing more than 32,000 cubic metres of former railway depot sheds and buildings, along with 105,000 cubic metres of earth. The contracting team delivering the station itself is a joint venture of Balfour Beatty, Vinci and Sistra. It's really nice to get out on site, and um, it was great today. The sun was shining, and um, so yeah, no, a normal week is 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 working very closely with the uh, with the contractor, the contractor's designer, my my team of engineers, and the and the central subject matter experts within the business to review and accept the designs that that the supply chain is providing, making sure it meets our requirements uh, as a as a client. So ultimately, get we get the um, the station and the railway that we that we all desire. Old Oak Common sits on a former Great Western Railway Depot site next to the new Crossrail Depot and the Hitachi Depot that maintains the trains that travel to Wales and the West. 
So Old Oak Common is the, is the first stop out of out of Euston on the way to Curzon. It will be the HS2 terminal for a, a, a circa a five-year period until Euston is operational. The station will house eight conventional platforms on the surface that will serve the Great Western, Elizabeth Line and the Heathrow Express. And there will be six subsurface, so underground platforms serving high speed too. Adrian explains that the design has evolved to enable more commercial development opportunities. As we've uh, developed the design over the years, it's now much more of a, a place, um, a real catalyst for development for the future. So we, we spotted an opportunity early on that um, working very closely with the Department for Transport, that if we... Uh, enclosed the western part of the deep structure on the high-speed side that would allow high-rise adjacent site development to be built. So that's unlocked the opportunity for up to sort of 30-storey buildings to be built next door, commercial buildings. Like the Midland stations, the exterior of the structure has a lot to thank the Victorians for. Well, obviously, the high-speed side being underground is um, that there's a vast amount of structure that the that the the public won't be won't be able to see, but that the superstructure that will be visible has a has a large glass facade. It's a architectural vaulted roof, which is inspired by the um, Victorian stations, the Great Victoria stations uh, of London and St Pancras and um, Paddington, for example. So yeah, steel steel glazed superstructure with one single roof that combines the high speed element and the conventional side of the station. So with an um, overbridge to allow access to the conventional side of the station, the eight platforms on the conventional side. Unlike the Victorian engineers of the late 1800s, Adrian and the HS2 team have tools for more recent industrial revolutions. Engineers today can use digital technologies to design, plan and monitor their work. So in the design of the station, we, we have the real station being built, but we also have the digital twin which will be used for future handover for asset maintenance and, and includes all the information that, that supports the design. Digital twins are virtual replicas of an infrastructure system fed with the design information that can be used to generate models of the assets and network. During the operational phase, these twins can be fed with real-time information from sensors on the railway, making them absolutely invaluable for maintenance, even being able to make predictions about future work and where and when it's needed. So as part of the design, we've got, we've got this fully 3D model that's very intelligent in itself. And as part of that, we're able to use virtual headsets and actually walk through the model and test test different parts of the design and from a, looking at it when, when, when the station's operational in 20, 2030 and see which elements in the design work and change them as, as needs be. This is particularly useful with the need to stay within budget being so critical during the design phase. On sites, we've, we've always known the, known the budget element for, for Old Oak Common and throughout the design, the way we've controlled designing the budget is getting periodic cost estimates from our designers and contractors and then uh, tweaking the design where we can to, um, to bring it back into, into our overall, overall budget envelope. 
One of the biggest contributors to cost and carbon emissions on any construction project is the use of materials. During the scheme design, we were the uh, roof steelwork was adding quite a bit to the to the cost of the uh, cost of the scheme, and we looked at ways to of which we could optimise uh, the roof uh, the roof design. And one of the things we decided to do at that stage was build a, f a physical model and do actual wind testing on it, which was allowed under the standards as a as an optimization, and that that allowed us to reduce the wind loadings and snow loadings by 20 and 40 percent. The financial savings from this were enormous. It was over five tons of steel out of the design and saved six or seven million pounds at the t at the time, which was which was a, a pretty healthy healthy figure. Another one was we realised through the dynamic passenger modelling that we didn't need the 14 metre wide island platforms within the high speed side. 12 and a half metre wide platforms would work. So that allowed us to reduce the width of the large box that's being constructed now. This may not sound like a major saving, but a 1.5 metre reduction in the width of the platform equates to a saving of £10 million when it comes to construction costs. And building brand new stations provides a great opportunity to bring economic regeneration to an area. And although common proactive steps have been taken to ensure the benefits of a new HS2 station are realised, in 2015, the Old Oak Park Rail Development Corporation, or OPDC, was set up by the Mayor of London to oversee and drive forward regeneration in West London, where the boroughs of Ealing, Brent and Hammersmith and Fulham all meet. The reason it was set up was because with High Speed 2 coming to this part of West London in Old Oak, it was felt that we needed an agency that was really going to be able to work with HS2, with the three local boroughs around the station, to really make sure that the economic growth, the regeneration, and all of the social benefits that could flow from this amazing new station with HS2, Elizabeth Line, Great Western Services, all together in this super hub station, that those benefits were really kind of maximised. David Luntz is the CEO of the Old Oak and Park Royal Development Corporation, and the development area covers 650 hectares, which includes residential areas, big green spaces like Wormwood Scrubs, and industrial places like the Park Royal Industrial Estate, which is home to many businesses which employ 45,000 people. The corporation's recently adopted local plan sets a planning policy framework for the delivery of 25,000 new homes and 56,000 new jobs, creating a new urban district for London with HS2's Old Oak Common Station right at its heart. The idea behind this development corporation is similar to what took place in Stratford more than a decade ago when the area hosted the 2012 Olympics. The goal is to encourage and guide new investment into the area. So I see our job as, you know, getting out there and really selling the message that this, this, could, th th this needs to be London's next really big inward investment opportunity. We need to shout about it. We need to feel excited about it. We need to sound credible as we go, as we will do fairly shortly, to a global investment market 
to say who wants to work with us and our local partners and stakeholders to really make this place everything it should and could be. We're obviously very keen to make sure that the Park Royal Industrial Estate and that incredible production and employment infrastructure remains very much in place. I think we would like to see that modernise over time. It's very car dependent at the moment. There are lots of opportunities to help Park Royal into a more sustainable and zero carbon future. I think that's what's really exciting here. It's a chance to really think about a really sustainable future settlement, which takes the best of what's already there, but really thinks about addressing some of these future challenges in a creative way. But it's also the OPDC's job to ensure that it's the right kind of investment coming in. One of our roles is to try and dial down or if possible even prevent inappropriate, if you like, speculation. And I think one of the challenges that a lot of regeneration projects face, and we may be no different, is that people see the opportunity to perhaps make a fast buck and not necessarily deliver something uh, that's in the best interests of local people. So that's definitely one of our challenges. But we've also set up some really, I think, quite innovative structures. So we have something called a community review group, and that is uh, a number of people who are brought together either because they live and or work in our local area and they review our planning applications because we are a planning authority as well as a regeneration agency. So before our planning committee meets and makes decisions, that community review group take a long hard look at the individual schemes and they then supply their feedback which is then taken into account when formal decisions are made. And that was, as far as we're aware, if not the first, certainly one of the first of those community review groups in the country. And it works very successfully. I can tell you that if you're an applicant in our area, you need to take the community review group very, very seriously because they take their work extremely seriously. And one of the key areas of focus for the right kind of investment is with housing developments. Yeah, very important. I mean, we have a target to try and deliver 50% affordable housing across all of the residential sites in the area. We have a minimum threshold of 35%. If you can't deliver 35% affordable housing, you know, you have to work very hard to convince us that that's the case through rigorous viability testing and um, viability reviews. We've managed to deliver about 41% affordable housing on 6,000 odd residential units that we've delivered so far. One of the area's largest landowners is currently the public sector through the Department for Transport and Network Rail, who acquired an area of 70 hectares for HS2's construction. And plans for this space have been laid out in the OPDC's local plan that was created in June 2022. And that sort of settle some of the major land uses in the area. That suggests that there's certainly the potential to deliver something like two and a half million square feet of employment space, offices, workplaces of one sort or another around the station. We also know that, you know, there's a whole series of sites um, with an easy walking distance of the station that are going to be largely residential. 
but not just residential. You know, we know that we've identified space for local health centres, local policing services, local community services. And we also have made very clear that at least 30% of all the land around the station and within the local plan more widely, actually, is going to be open space. So as well as a lot of homes, we want a lot of places where people can um, relax, enjoy themselves, um, including two new parks, which will be very close, actually, to this amazing new park plaza that HS2 have designed as the main entrance space to the new station, which um, I'm told is going to be twice the size of Trafalgar Square. So pretty major new amenity, really. And for housing that is developed on public land, achieving 50% affordable housing is not only just a goal, but it's a requirement. So, yeah, I mean, if this just becomes an unaffordable enclave, it's, it's going to be a failed project. This needs to demonstrate that we can deliver housing that works for, you know, a wide range of incomes. Big investment is going into building these new stations. And of course, during the construction phase, there can be major disruption to the local area. But in the long term, the stations can provide the areas with a huge opportunity. London has had a series of these quite seminal kind of projects, really. You know, Canary Wharf and London Docklands a generation ago. If one thinks about Stratford and East London with the Olympic Games and the legacy, if one thinks about what's happened at King's Cross and more recently what's happened at sort of Battersea Power Station. I mean, these are really big game-changing projects, which, as I say, have changed the face of their part of London. I think Old Oak and Park Royal is the next one of those game-changing projects. And the judgment, I think, we all need to make, and certainly future generations that will be at Old Oak and Park Royal, is have we learned all of the positive lessons from those previous projects and made sure that we've delivered something which actually puts London in a stronger place than it currently is? And crucially, my last word on this, where people locally feel that this was something that wasn't done to them, but was done with them. For all of the stations, the next major challenge is translating all of the design into construction and reality. So this means ensuring all of the incredible achievements from the world-leading environmental measures to having stations that are fully accessible to all now have to be physically realised. And so the crucial bit now is at construction stage, our construction uh, design and build contractors or our construction partners at the southern stations have now got to meet that challenge. Laura Kidd says that this should be assisted through collaboration. They may be four different stations, but there's a lot that can be learned from each of the projects as they take shape at different rates. Well, what we're actually doing now is we're doing quite a lot of collaboration meetings between the station teams as they're going through the design. We've set up a collaboration group because it's in their contracts to collaborate. 
The sheer scale of the project means that there are a plethora of different contractors and designers working on each aspect of the station's projects. HS2 are are bringing the designers together on certain topics or certain areas where one group might be further ahead than the others or one, uh, what what is the learning? So we're actually, so for instance, we have a, a big session on something boring, it might seem boring, which is always most important to customers, toilets. So, you know, what initiatives are we using the toilets are setting out and all we're doing this, you know, all of those sorts of things, materiality. So we, we have a focus in on that and then we can swap specifications and these sorts of things. We can look at the lighting posts and, you know, we all need the lighting posts, but we want them to integrate the, the sound system and the camera systems and things like that. So it's like, how do we actually do that? And if one team's further ahead, we can look at them and bring them together. As the head of architecture, Laura is involved in all of the four stations. But does she have a favourite? I'm not allowed to. It's like being a a parent. You can't say, can you, really? I do sometimes, but I shouldn't do. Because because they're kind of like, if you had four children, you wouldn't say one was your favourite, and it's not fair. But And you also don't really know until it's delivered, do you? Because what might be the favourite now might end up not being the favourite in the end. What Laura and the whole of the HS2 team are certain of is that what they create today will leave a lasting legacy for generations to follow. So it's not about what they do, it's about where they are and who they serve. And for me, that's always resonated throughout. And it's one of the things that I have found, you know, a lot of the work that I've put in has been around helping to realise exactly that, to extract it from whatever we're doing, whether we're working internally or with our external stakeholders or cross contracts or, and with our supply chain, that that is what we're addressing is what is the station doing in terms of its context, the people it's serving and, um, you know, the, the legacy that it's going to leave. These structures, the, the assets that we're leaving will have uh, a long term impact. You know, the expectations are last for 100 years more, 120 years or whatever. So, you know, we're talking, talking multi-generational impact. And that's, that's a huge responsibility. Next time on How to Build a Railway. We're using much more technology. We're asking much more of our systems, greater speeds, much more interoperability. There's much more expectation from passengers, much busier. Generally, the, the, the idea has been buy all the subsystems, let the contractors deliver them, and we'll come, al- come along at the end and uh, connect everything up and hey presto, it will all work. So that really is a, is, is a, is a, a fallacy. In fact, the train is doing most of the supervision there on our train, so the, so the driver's really supervising the supervisory system, if you see what I mean. So what we will enable us to do is run the model in the shadow. So imagine in the background a, a model that's predicting all the time what the railway is just about to do next. I believe it to be perfectly feasible in, in the future to have close to 100% reliability.
Your host has been me, Fran Scott. Thanks to our guests, Laura Kidd, Halla Lloyd, Adrian Hooper and David Luntz. To learn more about HS2, go to hs2.org.uk or follow us on social media at HS2LTD.